Well, good morning, church family. It is a joy to be with you this morning. Please take your Bible and open to Psalm 127. Um, this last week, um, I'm just now getting out of the woods. I take an annual backpacking trip. And so I've spent about the last four or five days on the Appalachian Trail in Virginia. Um, if you care about that stuff, we hiked from, um, hiked from Troutville all the way to Catawba, and I got to see some very beautiful things. I also had my first encounter with a bear. And I could tell you a really, a really good story of me fighting him and, you know, kicking him in the shin and calling him names, but really he took, half, he took a quarter of our food. Um, and so he got our bear, he climbed up a tree, he was a little guy, climbed up a tree, grabbed our, uh, our food sack, and by the time we got the lights on him, he had one bag in his mouth and he was running down the mountain. And, uh, and so by the time I tell that story a few times, I will have wrestled the bag back from him. Um, but it was, a, it was a great trip, I appreciate the chance to get to go and do that. Um, me and this group of guys have been backpacking for nearly 20 years now. We are a lot grayer than we used to be, um, not any wiser and definitely not in the shape we used to be in. Um, but it was a great time and, and it only rained on us once and that was good. But here's the part where it matters for you. I had a really long walk in the woods and I had a long time to think about this sermon. And so that might translate into us being here for a long time. But all of you were in mourning because as I rode back yesterday, I listened to a sad game on the radio, and so you need to be encouraged today. So I want to do that for you, okay? So I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Psalm 127. My sermon this morning is titled, Unless the Lord Builds the House. Um, November, if you did not know, is National Adoption Month. And so I'm going to speak a little bit about children for the next week or two and uh, speak about adoption next Sunday. But this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 127, which is a psalm of ascent of Solomon. Um, and so this is what Solomon writes in Psalm 127. It says, a song of ascents of a Solomon. A, so a psalm of ascent is a collection of psalms that were read and recited together as Jews made their pilgrimage from all over the surrounding area up to Jerusalem once a year for the Passover. So these, this is one of the psalms that would have been read among the families as they traveled. And he says, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. So I want to break this psalm into two parts and try to show you how this applies to us today. So the first thing I want you to see is that Solomon focuses in the first two verses on the uselessness of human self-sufficiency and effort. The uselessness of human self-sufficiency and effort. Solomon speaks in the first two verses about the futility, the vanity, the uselessness, the worthlessness of living a life apart from God. That's what the first two verses are about. Notice the three images that, that Solomon uses. 
The first image is the image of building a home or a house. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Everyone has a home. And then the secondly uses the image of watching over a city. Unless the watchman, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Right? So that's the image of watching over a city to protect it from invasion and destruction, which was absolutely happened all the time in ancient Israel, which is why all the cities had fortifications and walls and ramparts um, and gates to guard from invading forces. A city must be conserved and protected or others will come in to destroy it. And the last picture is the picture of industry and work and economic activity. He says it's in vain that you labor and toil all the time. He says, uh, and, but this is the image of working to produce and to provide for our needs. Now, these are all very practical images. These are all part of everyday life. There's nothing more practical than our human activities where we seek to create homes and cities and jobs and economies, and we seek to conserve those things. These are things that all of us desire, Right? All of us desire homes. All of us desire safety and security. And all of us long for fruitful labor, not fruitless or worthless labor. Now, Solomon's main point is that without God's blessing, without God's involvement, all of our toil, all of our striving, all of our labor is vanity. It's useless. It's worthless. It's futile. Now, that word vanity rings out of this text three times. If you remember, Solomon famously wrote um, Ecclesiastes where everything is vanity, a chasing after the wind, and he waxes on about that for chapter after chapter until he draws his conclusion. But he is saying, again, it is vain to engage in the ordinary, everyday, mundane things of life as though God is not needed or wanted or involved. All of our human efforts at doing these things in the end will be useless. It'll be futile. Now here's why. Just think about this for a second. Think about this. What if God determines to bring ruin to a home? What if he sends a storm or a judgment and the home exists no longer? What if God determines to bring judgment on a city like he did numerous times throughout the Old Testament, like Sodom and Gomorrah and Jerusalem and Assyria and Nineveh? What if God determines in his counsel and in his will to actually bring judgment? What if God determines to bring an ex economic collapse through either drought or famine or hurricanes or any other disaster? All of our human efforts at doing these things in the end will be useless and futile. We are at the mercy of God. Now, I want to just say here that if you're reading this, there is a theological tension in this text we can't ignore. There's a tension here. Let me tell you what it is. Here it is. First, you have to know that God is sovereign over all things. God rules over all things. That is the clear testimony of all of Scripture. Let me give you a few examples. Proverbs 16 says, The Lord has made everything for his own purposes, even the wicked for the day of disaster. God rules over all things, even over the wicked, he says. 
Acts 17, Paul says, For in him we live and move and exist. God rules over all of our living, all of our moving, all of our existence. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things work according to the counsel of God's will. And then Romans eleven thirty six 36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. So God is sovereignly ruling and reigning over all things in our universe. We're like, well, Jacob, yeah, that's true. What's the tension? Well, look at the tension. The tension is what Solomon says. Solomon says that there is a sense in which we can engage in life's activities apart from God. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build it in vain. So they are laboring, and they're laboring apart from God's involvement, or at least not an acknowledgement of God's involvement. He says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So these examples are of people engaging in activities apart from an acknowledgement of God, apart from an understanding of his sovereign rule. So you've probably heard this phrase before. Somebody might say, I want to know if God is in this. Is God in this? Is God a part of this? Is this something God would have us do? And that phrase is, we come up with that kind of phrase and that kind of terminology because of the language Solomon uses here. Solomon is saying that we can, in fact, live and act as though God does not matter in our day-to-day lives. James makes the same point in James chapter 4. James says this, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. That's somebody engaging in economic activity, like verses, like verse 2. They're going to toil and labor and turn a profit in another city. And then he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. I like to call that practical atheism. You can be a believer and you can engage in all of your normal everyday activities without any acknowledgement or any understanding of God's rule and God's purposes and live as though God doesn't exist. And, Paul, and James says that's arrogance, that's boasting. Now listen, as Christians, we live with both of those tensions in place. We don't let go of one without the other. We understand that God is sovereign over all things and that we include him in our practical efforts. We understand that we have to acknowledge God's sovereign rule while engaging in our building and watching and working. The Bible holds that tension everywhere. Listen to Proverbs 21, verse 31. It says, the horse is made ready for the day of battle. Does that sound like human activity? Does that sound like getting something done? Yeah, we go get the horse ready for the war. We strap him up. We get our sword. We get our shield. We get our bows and our arrows. We put the armor on the horse. We prepare the horse to go out into battle. And then he says, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So we engage in human activity. We prepare, we plan, we pray, we get things ready. But in the end, we ultimately know that God, the outcome is in the hands of the Lord. Now, look back at, at the text. I want you to just ask yourself this question as you read verses 1 and 2. Why do we build houses? 
Why do we desire safe communities and put watchmen on the wall? Why do we toil and work to make a living? And the answer is that all of us desire peace. We desire shalom. We desire the peace that these things bring. Now again, this is a psalm of ascent, and throughout all the psalms of ascent, there is one theme, and that is the peace that God brings to His people. That's what all the travelers wanted when they went to Jerusalem, the city of peace, Jerusalem, the city of peace. They desired peace. All of us want peace. We want the peace of a home. We want the peace of a secure city. We want the peace of secure jobs. But Solomon's point is that apart from God, what we get instead, if we engage in these activities apart from God, what we get instead is anxiety. We get restlessness and sleeplessness. Look what he says there in verse 2. He says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. But look at the promise there about those who engage in these activities with God's purposes. He says, God gives sleep to his beloved. Now that is the image of peace, is it not? When someone asks, how are you sleeping? They're asking, are you going to bed with your conscience clear and at peace with God. That's the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the issue here. God gives peace to those who engage in their home building, who engage in their city watching, who engage in their work and economic activity, peace. The farmer, slow, the farmer sows his fields and then sleeps in faith that God will provide the increase. And only God can provide the shalom of the home and of the city and of our sleep. Only God can give us the peace that all of us so desperately long for in this world that is only filled with uncertainty and anxious toil. None of us know what tomorrow will bring. We can wake up with nuclear war in the morning. None of us know. We have to make sure that our lives are engaged in a way in which They they honor Jesus. So here's what I have to ask you. How are you engaging in these day-to-day mundane activities? Are you doing these things apart from God? Are Are you living as though God doesn't matter in your daily efforts? Are you seeking peace in the things that can't ultimately give it to you? Your home can't ultimately bring you peace. Your city can't ultimately bring you peace. Your job can't ultimately bring you peace because all three of those things can be taken from you. And one day, you will close your eyes in death and you will not have them. What if God determines to take all of them away from you? These are serious questions. That is is Solomon's first point. The uselessness of human self-sufficiency and effort apart from living for God's purposes. But notice the second. The second thing is you see that Solomon talks about the blessing of divine gifts. The blessing of divine gifts. Look at verses 3 through 5. He says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. 
Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks of his enemies in the gate. Now, when you read this text together, all week long, all week long, this text seemed very disjointed. It seemed very disjointed. It's like Solomon, when he finishes verse 2, takes a really hard turn at verse 3. He talks about our homes, our cities, our jobs, and then, shoo, children. I don't think that's the case, though. I think Solomon intends to catch our attention. I think that's why he begins verse 3 by saying, Look, behold, open your eyes. I'm about to teach you something that you have to know. Solomon is about to lay out several truths that are meant to realign our priorities and the way we see the world. Now, before I begin, there are a couple of truths. Before I begin talking about these couple of truths, um, there are a couple of caveats I want to say before I dive into this section on children. Here are the caveats. First, the Psalms are wisdom literature. And what that means is, is they're meant to help us learn wisdom. That's the point of the Psalms. Not every principle in the Psalms is universally applicable. It's not their intent. The intent is to teach us wisdom. You need wisdom to use them. So, second, as we speak of children, I know that there are always those that do not have them. I know that there are those who cannot have them. And there are those who have lost them. And there are those that are in the danger of losing them. It's a very delicate topic. God knows this. He's not surprised. He's not frustrated. He's not forgotten. And He hasn't overlooked any of you. He knows. He sees. He hears. He answers. And His providence and purposes may be hidden from us for a season, but we can see and know His heart through Christ. So when we're dealing with these situations, we know that there are always these situations are always complex. And many times they are painful, and many times they are frustrating, and so I want to be careful and hopefully helpful. So let's consider now the rest of the Psalms in light of those two caveats. Now you notice here that the first two verses in Psalm 127 set up the last three verses. In verses 1 and 2, there's clearly a human component in each of the items listed. Humans do all of these things by their efforts. And they can actually do them apart from the recognition of God's involvement. You can build a house, build a city, engage in work apart from God's involvement. Notice in verses 3 through 5, they also require human interaction. Children are made through human interaction. But there's a difference. God must be involved in the bringing forth of children, even if the humans involved do not understand or acknowledge it. Here's why. I don't know if you've thought much about this, but this is the reason from the Scriptures. Every child brought forth on earth is an image bearer of God made in His image. Every one of them. God gives them an eternal soul. Every child, human, man, every boy and girl on this planet, given a soul. They are always, by God's design and determination, more 
than a material body and genes that they inherit from their parents. We are more than what we inherit from our parents. They are eternal beings with eternal souls. And as such, they are immeasurably more valuable than any house, than any city, or any industry. Now, it is, it is critically important for Christian parents to understand this. Our children must be seen as more important than our property, our city, and our jobs. That's a great place for an amen. Are your children more important to you than your house, your city, and your job? They must be. They have to be. They have to be. I can't say it any other way. They are divine gifts. Our children are gifts of God. Now, even for those who are not believers, if you're in this room and you say, I don't believe a word of what you say, Jacob, I believe and I still believe that your children, all children, are gifts from God. That there is no child that is not a divine gift. Now hear me. There may be a such thing as an unwanted or un unplanned pregnancy from a human perspective. But in God's purposes, there are no unwanted or unplanned children who are not created in the image of God, bearing a soul for His glory. Not a single one. So this truth should inform us as we consider our children and all children whether it is those who need a home to sleep in or whether it is those who need a family to become a part of. All children. Now, there are, two, there are two other truths here. All children are divine gifts. All children are divine gifts. There are two other truths. The next truth is that children are a heritage and a reward. Look what he says there. He says that children are a heritage and a reward. This speaks of children not only as divine gifts, but Solomon uses two terms here that should cause you to pause and think for a second. When it says children are a heritage, that means they're an, an inheritance. Children are an inheritance from the Lord. Now, we typically think of leaving our children an inheritance, that as a parent, I leave my children an inheritance. But Solomon turns that upside down, and he says that our children are our inheritance. Now, an inheritance isn't earned, is it? It's a gift. Children are our inheritance. They might receive an inheritance from us, but they are our inheritance. But next, he says that they are a reward. Now, that's interesting, right? Because a reward is earned. You clean your room, I'll give you $5. You wash my car, I'll give you 10 my children aren't even paying attention to that. They think that's like 25 dad, $25. So think about this, a reward is earned. So how can children be an unearned gift and at the same time be a reward? I think Solomon again is wanting to turn our expectations and intuitions upside down. What Solomon means here is that children in and of themselves as image bearers of God are their own reward. Children are their own reward. They are not earned as a reward. No, they are the reward. It's not what children can bring to us that is the reward. Many times they bring heartache and headaches and trials and sufferings and struggles. 
It's not the financial gain they may bring us because in Solomon's day, they would have had many children so they could work in the fields. No, children themselves are the reward. We don't use them for ourselves. We simply love them and enjoy them and recognize that they are gifts from God. And finally, I want you to notice that children, he says, they're not only divine gifts, they're not only inheritance, they're not only a reward. Children must be shaped, sharpened, and sent. Notice the image that Solomon uses of children. He says there in verses 3 through 5 that they are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Children are arrows in the hands of a warrior. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with arrows. Now what does that mean? Children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Three things. Arrows must be shaped. Think about it. Shaped is the idea of forming them and raising them to understand God's principles and purposes. Children are meant to be shaped. Arrows must be shaped or they will not fly straight. They will not fly true. A bent arrow is going to fly not straight. We have bow hunters in this room. Go out and bend one of your arrows and see if you can hit a target at 25 yards. Children are meant to be shaped. They're meant to be formed with a goal in mind. Second, they're meant to be sharpened. Sharpened carries the idea of training them and discipling them in the instruction of the Lord, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. Shaping them by teaching them a biblical worldview, forming them and shaping them for Christ by pointing them to the gospel. An arrow that is not sharpened cannot do what it was created to do. Imagine going into battle with a blunt arrow that is not shaped and is not sharpened. And finally, arrows must be sent. Now, this is the hard part for parents. And an arrow is meant to be fully drawn, aimed at a target, and sent with precision. Fully drawn, not half-hearted. Full power, full drawn, aimed at a target, sent with precision. This means that we must parent with a particular target in view. And that target is not becoming, preach to myself here, is not becoming an elite athlete. That target is not becoming the top of their field in their whatever career path they choose. That target is not being successful in the eyes of the world where they have more money than I have. That is not what they are sent at, even though those things are important. Here is the point. That target is living for Jesus and for the sake of his kingdom, for eternal purposes. Our children must be equipped to live a life of faith in this world. Arrows have a purpose. And this means we have to take our parenting seriously. It must be filled with purpose and intent. Now, we cannot parent as though, hear me, you cannot parent as though your children and your future children, for you youth up there that think I'm not talking to you, one day you will be parents, God willing, and then your children will do to you what you're doing to us. And grandparents will smile. It's going to happen. Write it down. Hear me. We have to take our parenting seriously. You cannot parent as though your children are not a gift, as though they're not an inheritance, as though they're not a reward, and as though they're not arrows meant to be aimed at an appropriate target. Again, 
Let me say that there's always the caveat with wisdom literature in the Bible. A parent can do everything in their power under God's guidance and grace, and their children will still walk away from the faith they were raised in. It can happen with my children. It can happen with your children. It has happened to some of your children and grandchildren. And even though there's that caveat, that is never an excuse for the parent who is doing nothing to raise their children according to God's Word. And at the same time, there are parents who are unbelievers, who have children, who have met Jesus, who are determined to walk with Him. And at the end of all things, God's purpose and grace will stand. Now let me conclude here. As I conclude, let me restate the overall purpose of this psalm. All of us must make sure that we live lives of faith that acknowledge God's sovereign rule. Let's turn away from sinful self-sufficiency so that we can live lives that are filled with the fruit of God's peace as we allow God to work in and through us as we build our homes, watch over our cities, and engage in industry and economic activity. Now, for those that do not have this kind of peace, here's the gospel connection. For those that are living as though God doesn't matter, for those that are only living for their homes, their cities, and their jobs, I'll remind you of what Jesus said. Jesus says, what good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What are you, what are you going to do when you fill your barns and your storehouses and God says, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you? On the day you stand before Jesus and all you have is your handful of goods, but you have no heavenly treasure which is Jesus. I want to remind you that only Jesus can satisfy the longings of your heart. Only Jesus can give you the peace and joy and contentment that you long for. As Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. God made you to know Him and love Him and find joy in Him so you can look a million different places and you'll never find it. You can have all the money this world offers you and in the end you will not have peace. Because the peace you were made for can only come through Christ. So I encourage you to come to Jesus in repentance, turning from your sin and trusting Him. Now lastly, I want to end with this. I want you to notice, who wrote this psalm? Solomon. Solomon wrote this psalm. I want to point out one danger of this psalm, and that is the failure of Solomon to heed his own words. If you read through... Kings, and you read through Samuel, Solomon was an abject failure when it came to living a life of honoring Jesus from beginning to end. The, the entire nation of Israel will be torn from his own son who did not walk with Jesus but followed Solomon. Solomon is the wisest man that ever lived. He ended well, but he did not, he did in the middle stretch, did not do well. So there's always the danger of not heeding your own words. So as a parent, I'll remind you that you can know what is true here. You can know the truth of God's word. You can be a hearer of God's word and not a doer, just like Solomon. All of us must raise our children with these truths in mind. We are at the mercy of Jesus. Do not make an excuse for, for, what you, for, for, with, for the thing with which you must give an account. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would take this word and you would strengthen us by it. And Father, I pray for those parents that are struggling with their children right now, that, oh God, you would grant them the grace that they need to walk through these difficult and delicate seasons. 
Father, I pray for those couples that long for children and do not have them. Father, I pray for those couples that are contemplating opening their home to foster children and to adoption. And, oh God, I pray that they would recognize that, that Father, you and your divine purposes have, give, have children available for them. And, Father, we ask that, above all things, that we would live for Jesus, acknowledging his rule over our lives each moment. Father, we pray this in Christ's name.